And on the other end of the phone line is Dr. Darius Dola Dolachahi. Dr. Dar is a neurologist at Ottawa Hospital, and he's also with the Heart and Stroke Foundation, and he's also a professor, an associate professor in the uh, Brain and Mind Institute at the University of Ottawa, and he's here to talk to us this morning about a headline that we've actually talked about a number of times uh, that appeared locally here. Uh, Apparently, it's all about the... uh, emergency room visits in lower mainland hospitals down significantly over the past few months. That was the headline. Dr. Dar, good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. Morning, Sterling. How are you doing? It's a pleasure to have you with us, and I'm doing fine, thank you, sir. The other night, I'm sitting at home uh, watching television, and on comes a commercial from the Heart and Stroke Foundation, uh, and it talks to me, uh, uh, looking uh, sitting there on the comfy couch, and I've actually talked about this, Dr. Dar, on the radio a number of times over the past few months. Uh, the Heart and Stroke Foundation is aiming this particular brand-new television campaign at Canadians who have, for a number of reasons avoided going to emergency rooms and going to hospitals for care they should be receiving are you experiencing this in ottawa the same way we are here in metro vancouver absolutely we we've been seeing it uh, not just in canada across the world this has been a thing but in canada where we have uh, very very uh, top line stroke services and stroke response services we're seeing this quite a bit in ottawa where we we measured about a 30 35 percent drop in visits uh, for stroke to the emergency departments and uh, the, the uh, I put it down to one of two possibilities, and I'm sure you can expand a lot more on this because I think my list is a little too short. But the, the two reasons that I've cited uh, for Canadians abstaining from visiting the hospitals, Dr. Dar, is one, this absurd Canadian politeness we're all sort of given in our DNA that says, oh, well, please, you go first. And after all, it's, it's a time of COVID-19. So we'd best leave our hospitals a set aside for COVID-19 patients. After all, it's a pandemic. And reason number two, Doc, I don't want to go anywhere near a hospital. They got people with COVID-19 in them, and I don't want to dare risk getting a, get contracting the disease. I don't think I've covered all the reasons, but those are two rather prominent ones. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. That second one is actually a sentiment that I hear a lot from patients after they had a stroke, did not come into the emergency, and then I see them several days later once it's too late to do anything about their disease. Uh, In fact, I saw two people just last week with exactly that situation in my outpatient clinic where they came in. One of them had very clearly had a stroke, made the decision not to go in. Uh, Her words were exactly with our... uh, because I didn't want to go in due to the COVID thing. Yeah. You know, that's a very common thing to hear. Mm-hmm, sure. And uh, sat at home for two days with a stroke. And then finally, on day three, the symptoms weren't going away. That's when uh, that's when they came in. Wow. So um, uh, 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 two questions out of that. Uh, the second question is, uh, was waiting three days a very dangerous thing to do? But even more fundamentally, Doc, how does a person know they're having a stroke? So, I, I mean, just to back up, um, the, the stroke, what it is, is essentially a very sudden onset neurological change because a blood clot goes into your brain. Okay. And it's very common. 
Uh, we see it about every nine minutes in Canada. It's about 62,000 people. So during the course of this conversation, a person in Canada will have a stroke. Oh, my. Then what happens is um, the symptoms can manifest in very different ways. We use uh, an acronym called FAST to try and get people to recognize stroke. F being a facial droop. You mm-hmm. see an asymmetry in the face all of a sudden. Um, a being arms, meaning you ask a person to lift their arms and you'll notice one arm is weaker than the other, may not even move. A leg, of course, does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, ask for speech. Suddenly the voice changes. They may be unable to produce language. They may be unable to understand your language. Or they may sound very slurred all of a sudden as though they've been drinking when clearly they haven't. Right. And the T is for time. And the whole point of this is we can break those blood clots in the emergency department before they cause permanent damage to the brain. But time is the key factor. Okay. If you can call 911, an ambulance in your region will know what the designated stroke center with the stroke therapies and the stroke physicians are. They will pick you up from your house, take it to that center, alert them before you get there to right. be ready for you. And then they will proceed to break the blood clot. So to answer your question, um, the second one in particular, if you wait, you miss that treatment opportunity because every minute you're losing up to 2 million brain cells when you have a clot in your brain. Mm -hmm. So by waiting three days, you've essentially caused permanent injury. And I mean, we shouldn't even be talking days. We should be talking minutes. But, you know, I had another situation where a person at home lost full function of their arm, you know, coming back to the FAST acronym, they lost full function of their arm, witnessed by the family member, but the two of them decided they were so scared of COVID and everything they'd been reading that they would just sit at home and see if it went away overnight. The next morning when the person was still paralyzed on one side, they called 911, ambulance came and brought them to the eMERGE where I was able to assess but was unable to do anything for the person because the permanent injury had already set in. So what, what's the sort of timeline here, uh, doctor? Because uh, you, you, you're talking about a very specific... And by the way, you'll be pleased to know that most of the ambulances here in Metro Vancouver have the FAST logo on the sides of the vehicles. It's, they're very connected to the whole idea. And I think a lot of British Columbians are, are, are plugged into the FAST uh, syndrome thing as well. But uh, what, what is typically a safe zone in terms of time to give you professionals an opportunity to break that clot and avert permanent damage caused by a stroke? Ideally, under four and a half hours Mm. is when we need to see you. Now, we have some therapies that can go a little bit beyond that, but the majority of therapies, to get the best chance at resolution, we need you in that eMERGE under four and a half hours. So, I mean, yeah, we're all afraid of COVID and we're all trying to do the right thing here. But at the end of the day, the reason we're afraid of COVID is because we're afraid of getting hurt. Sure. Well, there's nothing that's going to hurt you more than permanent sudden onset disability.
Interesting stuff. Doc, let me take a quick break. And by the, the way, the headline actually reads, many lower mainland ERs see, quote, historical drop in visits through the first months of 2020. I'm joined from Ottawa by Dr. Darius Dolat-Shahi. He is a neurologist at Ottawa Hospital, speaking of, on behalf of our many friends of the Heart and Stroke Foundation as headlines here in British Columbia. And as Dr. Uh, Darius explains to us right across Canada, historic lows. Uh, in visits through uh, two emergency rooms at Canadian hospitals during the first few months of this year. And Dr. Dar, it's all about COVID. And I wanted to talk to you because it's, I mean, people don't go to the hospital because they're terrified of catching COVID-19. I want to just take a second, if you don't mind, to talk about what you and your colleagues at the hospitals, you in the front lines, feel about this uh, working with COVID and dealing with the reality of, of risk that you uh, is attached to your job on a good day anyway, certainly uh, exacerbated by COVID-19. Well, I mean, I'm not going to lie. When this all started, all of us, um, you know, were scared. Um, uh, you know, to say we weren't would be disingenuous, but... At the end of the day, we've all been trained for this. Uh, we all have protocols in place for donning and doffing the proper equipment uh, to protect not just ourselves, but also the patients um, and their family members from, uh, you know, spread amongst uh, us and uh, themselves. So we all have this training. Uh, but to be honest, when we train for this, uh, and I, I remember vaguely, you know, many years ago after SARS, um, getting formal training on how, how to behave, we never actually think it's going to happen. Sure. Uh, and when it happens, it happens so quickly. It's remarkable. I mean, we I still remember we had an inkling of it coming uh, from, from Europe, and and before you knew it, it was here, and it was here fast. And, uh, we, you know, we, we had that initial uh, fear. Nobody, of course, hesitates to go in. This is our job, and, and uh, in, a certain, in a sense, we're kind of proud to do it. So you just jump in there. Um, and then very quickly, the fear is gone. I, I think after my first day of being in this situation fully gowned, um, that was it. That was the only fear. After that, you know exactly what you're doing and you proceed with your job. But uh, to answer the other part of your question, how does it affect our daily life? Yeah. Um, that's, that's actually a very tough one because in stroke in particular, a lot of patients have difficulty with communication. Yes. Um, and they have a lot of fear. I mean, if you can just imagine all of a sudden losing control of a part of your body, if not half of it, uh, and, and lying in that bed, you need that reassurance from the nurse and the physician to tell you this is going to get better and, and from your family member next to you helping you eat and sit and communicate. And the biggest problem that we're seeing is the inability to make that facial connection with people because you're wearing a mask. Yes. You have to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. So they see my eyes and that's it. They can't see my mouth move. And if they're already having trouble hearing, many of our patients are elderly with hearing aids and they can't talk. And the ones that ha are high risk for COVID also have to wear masks. So we, we lose that humanity. You lose that communication facially and your your bedside nurse is wearing a mask sure, and sometimes of course, even yeah. a face shield uh, so you lose that connection and of course we have restrictions on visitors mm -hmm. often there being no visitors allowed so you lose that family support as well so that i think is is it, it it's this feeling that you're there to help you get used to the idea of the condition but you can never get used to the loss of the humanity and you try your best 
to find ways around it and find ways to connect with your patients. It is a challenge. I'll bet. Now, doctor, as we've lived with COVID now for a, a long enough time to have adapted somewhat, have rules with respect, particularly to individual patients with communications issues, have rules for attendants or family members or representatives uh, uh, being with that patient been relaxed up to the point where it can happen now? Uh, you know, the short answer is yes, um, at, at most jurisdictions, but each hospital is different. They have their own rules, and um, in part because each hospital is in a unique geographic location sure. with its own unique amount of COVID. So they have different levels of risk and therefore different levels of response. But in general, I, from what I've seen at our hospital, as things got under control, absolutely, we started doing what we can. There's certain limits that you just can't pass. I mean, you can't stop wearing a mask, for example. Of course, yeah. But we have brought in iPads and other uh, mobile devices and set up, for example, um, scheduled FaceTime with family members and then and whatnot, scheduled uh, meeting times over the phone with, with um, caregivers. So, so we've done what we can, absolutely. Uh, only a couple of minutes left, uh, Dr. Dar, and we do appreciate your time on a Sunday morning, sir. But for those listening to us around Metro Vancouver and over on the island as well, uh, who may uh, have skipped, in quotes, a visit to a hospital recently when some kind of something inside them suggested maybe that would be a good idea, they took a pass. Uh, any words of advice with respect to maybe rethinking that? Most people don't misuse emergency services. Sure, there are those that maybe don't have a family doctor, want to get a quick blood test or something. Those are things that, of course, you don't go and do right now. But if you really have an emergency, if you have something that is not right, trust me, that condition is far more dangerous than COVID. Don't delay. You in the in the Vancouver area and in BC as a whole have excellent health care. You don't want to be sacrificing your health and sacrificing all that is good that's been set up to protect you and your health because of fear. Excellent. Well put, too. And of course, we're also fortunate, too, that in terms of managing COVID-19, this province has done a superb job and and we're in the very fortunate position of having some very low numbers, comparatively speaking, which should also be reassuring to individuals on the bubble in terms of confidence about going to the hospital. Absolutely. Absolutely. The numbers continue to drop because we've all behaved in a very appropriate and responsible fashion. Uh, Lots more information about this at heartandstroke.ca. Dr. Dar, it's been a pleasure to have you, Dr. Dolat Shahi uh, at Ottawa Hospital. A pleasure, sir. We'd love to have you come back with us and talk more as this goes forward. It's been a real treat having you on the program today. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Sterling. Deloitte is revealing new insights into consumer behavior and spending intentions, particularly when it comes to Canada's retail sector. Deloitte's new Global State of the Consumer Tracker has been monitoring Canadians' anxiety levels, safety and well-being concerns, consumer travel sentiment, as well as new spending habits and emerging consumer personas. Anxious to talk about that one. It's a pleasure to welcome Marty Weintraub, National Retail Leader at Deloitte, to have a look at their new State of the Consumer Survey. Mr. Weintraub, Marty, good morning and welcome. 
Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I Just have to ask you, before we dive into the survey, I, I want you to hearken back, Marty, to one year ago this very morning. Were you among the millions of Canadians, Marty, feeling perhaps a little tender, having celebrated the Raptors' win of the NBA championship the <laughs> night before? Yeah, you, you caught me. I was. <laughs> uh, I'm a big Raptors fan. So, yes, I'm a little bit sad right now. Well, yeah, where's the buzz gone, huh? My gosh, what a, what an epic year for Toronto sports fans that was. And, of course, they, they, they were appreciated and, and uh, uh, saluted right across the country. We are big parties here a year ago last night, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. So, Marty, let's talk a little bit about what the, the pandemic has done to Canadians in terms of our attitude. More than anything else, it's, we've, we've, we've been locked up for months. We've, we've been forced to change our habits, however reluctantly. Uh, we've uh, uh, certainly had to revise and revisit our economic realities. And, and so let's talk a little bit of, in general terms, and then we'll zoom in on some of the specifics you found in the state of the consumer tracker uh let's talk about spending habits for example how have they changed if at all yeah for sure no we've definitely seen um quite a shift in spending and the one thing i will say sterling at the at the guts of all this is really uh fear and safety so safety prevails over everything and that's what's you know tempering spend here and accelerating in other areas. So, for example, we're seeing sort of a tale of two cities. So anything that's in the essentials area, so think about groceries or everyday household goods, spending there as we ask Canadians to look out the next four weeks versus the previous four weeks, we're still seeing a disproportionate amount of wallet share going to that, which is probably not a big surprise uh, to your listeners. And unfortunately, the opposite is true for more discretionary businesses. So think about uh, clothing and apparel or electronics or obviously restaurants and takeout food. Those are still very much in the red, meaning that um, wallet share is not going to those areas. Interesting. But people who are, for example, interested, and, and I uh, had a conversation with my daughter a week ago who was a little chafed because, Dad, I need new clothes, but I don't want to go out shopping yet. So uh, some people have, have taken to online shopping to sort of bridge that gap. Have you noticed, for example, since this pandemic set in, a measurable increase in online activity, especially on the retail side of things, Marty? Yeah, for sure. Um, and the analogy we've used a lot with uh, with our retail clients is, um, and with Bill and Ted's uh, Adventure, the sequel coming out now, it's kind of like going in a phone booth time machine and being propelled into the future. <laughs> so a lot of retailers, yeah, a lot of retailers have have told me that uh, they've experienced uh, increases in online shopping. Again, no surprise, stores were closed. You know, at rates they weren't expecting for another three to five years from right. now. They've hit it in three to five weeks. And so that's and so we've modified our 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 habits, but our our desire, or certainly in in some cases even need to continue shopping for new items, hasn't really diminished uh, noticeably, has it? Yeah, not for those essential goods. Now, right. Interestingly, uh, we've heard a lot about you know curbside. So obviously, as many stores, you know, traditional stores were closed, and in again in various jurisdictions. And I know we're talking you know to a British Columbia crowd today, but uh, different jurisdictions opened up stores with different rules. But curbside nationally has become the new big thing um, for obvious reasons, and so we've seen a pretty big pick up in uh, no pun intended in curbside business. Sure, and that's a trend we accept. We expect to continue into the future. 
Interesting stuff. You talked about the fear factor, though. It's very interesting, Marty. In our first, about about an hour ago right now, in fact, we were having a conversation with a a neurologist at the Ottawa Hospital about Canadians uh, in every province, Marty, who have been reluctant to their own detriment in many cases to go to a hospital emergency room for what would appear to be, in a normal uh, time, pretty urgent medical attention. A lot of people have taken a flying pass out of fear of catching. COVID or being in the way of someone who has COVID being seen by emergency room personnel. A lot of Canadians are, are really have put themselves at unnecessary risk by not going to hospital. So with that in mind, to uh, to translate that into a retail context, uh, let's take a look at dining. You've already mentioned this, Marty. I have another member of my family who is an experienced and very, very good chef who's out of work, whose restaurant has collapsed is not going to reopen and who was very discouraged by the degree of fear that still exists in people who now can go out to restaurants but who seem to be still extremely reluctant to do so. Yeah, that's right. It's one of the things uh, we track a number of things in our tracker, as you mentioned. I mean, and, you know, going out to X, which could be restaurant, could be store, uh, you pick it. Um, unfortunately, all those businesses have been quite decimated. I mean, I'll just share some statistics with you Please. Uh, and your listeners. I mean, you know, going out to a store when we ask Canadians, you know, again, do I feel safe going out to a store? Um, it, it's a good news, bad news situation. The good news is it's been trending up. So as of a couple of weeks ago, 45% of Canadians uh, feel comfortable going out to a store. And by the way, just you know, a month ago, that percentage was about half. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing a little bit of that. And that's probably to be expected. But going out to a restaurant is still only about a quarter of Canadians kind of feel comfortable doing that. Now, of course, most restaurants are not open. And now we're starting to see with summer season, uh, various jurisdictions opening up outdoor seating and patios and, you know, shrinking capacities. But I think there's going to be a significant hangover to the sort of uh, that part of of dining out. Um, And by the way, you know, if we talk about travel, uh, it's even worse. I mean, uh, nobody's looking forward to getting on a plane, staying in a hotel or anything of that sort right now. A pleasure to be talking with Marty Weintraub from Deloitte about their brand new State of the Consumer Tracker Survey, which they've just released recently. And Marty, we've talked specifically so far about Canadians and our habits and our intentions and how COVID-19 has changed our behaviors and indeed how we spend our money in some cases. But you've also taken a look, you've taken a step back and you've got a bigger picture to compare us with. You've taken two much larger economies than ours, China and and the United States uh, as comparison models. So talk a little bit about Canadians and how we stack up against those other two huge economies. Yeah, um, you know, unfortunately, it's a, it's a bit mixed right now. You know, uh, if we look out east, and a lot of folks do want us to look out east to China and South Korea, obviously, as they're, you know, two to, call it two to three months ahead of us in the pandemic, depending on, on what you choose to believe in terms of the start date. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we look at Chinese consumers uh, about spending, so in terms of some of those things we talked about, fear, anxiety, those are still stubbornly high, right? So we think about, you know, safety and security of job loss um, or the ability to make upcoming payments or delaying large purchases, all mm-hmm. those sort of, you know, consumer mindset uh, type questions. Uh, they're still pretty stubbornly uh, high in Asia as well, in China specifically, um, around that, even though they claim to have, you know, it under control and cases down, which again alludes to that 
longer-term hangover effect. Um, in the U.S., it's very mixed. I mean, you know, I would, uh, I've heard colleagues refer to it as a bit of a gong show sure. in terms of, you know, federal government, municipal government, et cetera. And, uh, but they are a little bit more optimistic. I mean, the stock markets, you know, have been, uh, you know, you might say stronger lately and maybe a little disconnected from these things we're talking about. But the money uh, is still kind of being spent very carefully and following similar patterns to what we talked about here in Canada. Okay. Of, you know, essentials versus not essentials. Okay. And of course, there's a, a much bigger drive, there's a bigger urgency coming at the federal level in the United States to get back to normal, uh, at, in many cases at, at, at the risk of, at a very high risk of ignoring COVID. Uh, how about air travel? Are people from other parts, because you were saying Canadians are quite reluctant at this point, and we'll talk to Clara Newell more about it later in the show today. She's our travel expert and and she would agree with the assessment that Canadians are quite reluctant at this point to jump on a plane with that very insecure air circulation system, et cetera, et cetera. What about Americans and other world travelers? Yeah, so um, if we look at the U.S. in terms of, you know, consumer travel sentiment, about 26 percent of uh, Americans feel safe flying right now. That's a little bit higher than Canada. It's about 21 percent in Canada. Okay. Um, you know, but a third feel safe going to hotels. So again, it's still pretty dismal, to be honest with you. They're not um, jumping on it. I think, you know, with summer coming around the corner and tourism, we're going to see a lot of domestic travel and domestic holidays to probably destinations that were previously not thought about or even unknown to most uh, folks in the U.S. And that'll be true in Canada as well. But uh, but like I said, in terms of international, I mean, you know, only 16% of Americans are looking to travel internationally right now as of as of a couple of weeks ago. So I think, you know, depending what happens over the next probably month or two, especially in the U.S. with a lot of the social unrest and what that might do to a potential wave two, and we're seeing, you know, as of a couple of days ago, 19 states showing higher case counts day over day, um, you know, really it's going to be a day-by-day situation in terms of the impact of sentiment. Interesting stuff. We look for barometers constantly, Marty, as we reflect on, on how we're doing and how, uh, as, a, as a group, as a nation, Canadians are handling all of this. And I note, for example, in the current, uh, the new Deloitte survey, alcohol sales are down, not hugely, but a touch. What does that tell you? Yeah. Well, I, I got my personal opinion on that. I, I can't tell you I've, I've done detailed focus groups as to that. But we have, I'll give you a little, little, little bit of information, actually, on another uh, one of our uh, quote-unquote sins uh, now, which is legal, which is cannabis. Right. On the alcohol front, we, we did see um, a little bit of movement. I mean, in the early days when all stores were shut, um, we did see that alcohol did get a little bit more sort of wallet share in the early days. I mean, I, I would hypothesize it's not surprising if we're cocooning at home with uh, with our immediate family. I, it's not surprising that uh, turning to alcohol for, you know, something to do and potentially even for something not on, on, on a good way to do, mm-hmm. um, we'll probably see a bit of an impact of that longer term. Interestingly, and then it kind of is pulled back a little bit more recently in terms of uh, I think people stocked up a little bit, to be honest, in the early days of the pandemic, and now they have some, quote-unquote, inventory on hand. Right, right, but yeah. Cannabis, interestingly, yeah, interesting on cannabis, Sterling, we did a separate study. It's on our tracker, but we did it uh, for a different purpose. We saw about a 16% increase in cannabis users, new cannabis users, uh, as of early March. Um, and if that's a pretty nascent new industry, as, as your listeners will probably know. Sure. So we've seen increased adoption. We've seen stockpiling in cannabis increase as well. 
And the new users, interestingly, the profile of them are slightly older, uh, slightly higher, more high income, and as well more educated. So it was a different kind of new user into the cannabis space um, in parallel. Interesting stuff. And of course, uh, throughout all of this uh, in British Columbia, the difference, the big difference being, Marty, is that none of the liquor stores were closed here, uh, nor were the cannabis right. stores. So we've had the good fortune in British Columbia not to have stocked up. Now, that not, that said, it's also important to point out that at the very beginning of all this, a lot of BC people weren't sure how long those stores were going to stay open. So you're absolutely right. Like their like cousins in Ontario, they stocked up big time. I want to ask you about yeah. one other thing that that really jumped off the pages of the survey, and I'd like you to expand on it for you. You talk about emerging personas, specifically the socially conscious shopper. What's that mean, Marty? Yeah, we've seen a pretty big uptick um, on what we call the notion of trust, right? And so that could be trust in the particular organization and brand. It could be trust in terms of the actual products that they carry and sell. Um, and what we're seeing is a couple of things, right? So we're seeing uh, Canadians gravitating more to companies and brands that have navigated the crisis successfully. Okay. You know, we've seen a change in tone. I mean, think about the commercials and the advertising we're seeing. Canadians, and quite frankly, citizens around the world don't want to be, quote unquote, sold to in a hard way, like a hard, the hard sell. Mm-hmm. You're seeing a lot of a softer tone. I mean, uh, the story I like to share is one of the UK really quickly is in the early days of the pandemic, KFC ran their traditional marketing campaign over you know finger licking good chicken and right. they kind of showed in their commercial folks literally licking their fingers after eating chicken and Ooh. that uh, caused quite a bit of lashback as you can imagine with the hygiene standards and they had to pull that very quickly and kind of step backwards so a lot of companies are rethinking that and, and so I, that's what i mean by socially conscious really respecting brands that are navigating the crisis well as well as a move to local and we we saw some of that obviously happening uh, quite frankly, in Western Canada, BC specifically, that movement was a bit stronger than the rest of Canada, even before the pandemic. Now, even nationally and globally, you know, about 45, 50% of Canadians are saying, I will purchase more from brands that have navigated well to the crisis and as well those that are sourcing their items more locally. Interesting stuff. Final question to you, just in terms of expectations. Yep. Are we holding back, typically as a group, are we holding back on the big ticket item for the time being? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yes, um, to the tune of you know about half a Canadian saying they're going to you know defer purchases of large ticket items. Um, interestingly, in BC, when we cut the data by by region, uh, BC sort of was a little bit more optimistic than the rest of Canada, specifically on that statistic, uh, mm. Sterling, a little bit before. But unfortunately, in the last survey, which we ran just two weeks ago, they caught up to the rest of Canada. In BC, that was about 44% of uh, folks in BC were, were going to delay large purchases. That was a, a lower value, it was about 40% just a couple weeks before that. So they've now sort of kind of come around to the rest of the country. This has been fascinating conversation, Marty Weintraub. We appreciate you getting up early on a Sunday morning to share it all with us. And uh, folks can find more of it. Just Google Deloitte Consumer Survey. Thanks for this, Marty. We'll talk again. My pleasure, Sterling. Marty Weintraub in Toronto. It's time to talk a little sports on a Sunday morning. Always a pleasure to welcome this rascal to the radio. Uh, Rob Williams is the sports editor at the Daily Hive and recently wrote the story that so many of us were happy to read. Under the headline, Dr. Bonnie Henry approves plan to have Vancouver as an NHL hub city. Rob, good to have you back. Good morning. 
Hey, Sterling, how are you? I am very well, thank you. The story goes on, and you wrote it uh, well, uh, talking about the uh, the protocols that Dr. Henry and the province would insist upon in terms of the NHL and all of their players and officials and staff would have to go through, the bubble that they would have to live in, and so on. So, uh, and, and, and Horgan, of course, Premier Horgan, is, is a big sports fan and is a real booster of this. Dr. Bonnie Henry allows a little smile when she talks about hockey in the Canucks. Uh, so, again, they're, they're certainly positive about the potential that this represents. However, Rob, uh, the next headline that I'm going to quote uh, is, has come out, uh, it came out since yours. This one says, uh, with Vegas the front runner to host NHL's return, which city is the second hub? And that, of course, begs the question, A, is Vegas indeed the front runner? And if they are, that knocks us out because Vegas is the west and they would want a city in the east. Don't you think, Rob? Well, possibly. And there's a, there's been a number of reports, uh, some of them conflicting over the last few weeks uh, about what the NHL exactly wants to do. The, 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 the main thing we keep hearing is that the NHL wants the two best hub cities, period. Right. Uh, and, and if those are both in the, in the West, so be it. Really? Okay. Although uh, another, another thing that they've been talking about is that maybe they don't want teams playing in their own hub city. So not having Vancouver play, uh, the Canucks play in Vancouver, for instance, uh, because of a, some sort of perception of some some kind of home ice advantage. Now, I without fans in the stands and with teams all having all their practices in the same spot, nobody traveling around, I find that you know a pretty negligible to, to be honest. I agree, but, but it remains to be seen what what they, what they do. The, the the latest chatter is that is that Toronto is indeed the front runner for Canada, right? Which <laughs> Which which seems odd because because of the amount of cases um, in Ontario right now are, are, are far ahead of of both uh, Alberta and in in BC where where Vancouver and Edmonton were thought to be the two cities that were duking it out before. So yeah, it's it's, it's going to be interesting. I, I think nothing is off the table, but I, I do think that there that it makes if it were for, were me in charge, I do think it makes sense to have. Uh, one city in the east and one city in the west, sure. just for time zone purposes, yep. because you're going to want to have these eastern teams playing at a time that that's conducive uh, for the eastern time zone, and you don't want players completely out of the rhythm any more than they than they ordinarily would. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about Vegas that really sort of throws me off is ice surfaces. Here in Vancouver, uh, for umpteen different uh, teams, if they, we were to be the hub, there'd be lots of practice facilities that they could bus to and lots of ice to, to practice on and that sort of thing. I've, I've been to Vegas within the past well, few months before all this stuff happened. Uh, there's the big arena, T-Mobile, where the, uh, the Knights play. But I don't imagine Vegas has a lot of spare ice surfaces in the middle of the desert. Doesn't strike me as being realistic. Yeah, I mean, they only need the one uh, arena. They're, they're not planning on playing any games uh, in non-NHL arenas, so okay. it would just be the practice ice. So the, the Vegas Golden Knights have a, a wonderful uh, practice facility, um, one of the more state-of-the-art practice facilities, as I understand it. I've never been, but that's what that's what um, they said when, when Vegas got their team. Um, so yeah, they, you wouldn't need that many, um, sheets of ice. You just, you probably need, um, you know, 
I mean, the more the more the merrier. But you need you need ice so that so the teams that are not playing that day can can have full practices. Uh, you can have game day skates and and whatnot on the on the main sheet, uh, sure. main arena. So, uh, yeah, I don't I I wouldn't I don't think that that um, that will be much of a factor. I know that that one of the factors they're looking at in in uh, possibly having games in Los Angeles is that the practice facility is quite far away from from uh, Staples Center in, in uh, downtown Los Angeles and with LA's traffic um, that that could be a real annoyance for teams so yeah there's there's a number of, of different factors uh, another factor is the hotel capacity and this is something that that only kind of I, struck me recently I figured an entire hotel would be enough but you're going to need more than one hotel if each team is carrying 50 players sure. uh, 50 players and staff and mm-hmm. you've got 12 teams do the math on on how many uh, people that is plus you've got NHL officials you've got uh, you know um, probably traveling some traveling media perhaps um, yeah there, there's it's a it's a absolute logistical nightmare <laughs> to put this together but uh, but they're going to try to do it indeed well and of course we, we you're, you're right to mention Edmonton we ought not to overlook the fact that Edmonton perhaps not as noisily as either Vancouver or Toronto but is nonetheless aggressively marketing its uh, presence or its uh, location as a possible hub city as well let's talk dates here for a second we're hearing now Rob that uh, Ju- July 10th is the projected start of training camp so between now and july 10th nhl players from literally all over the world and we have quite a number of canucks in europe uh, need to find their way back to their home cities to begin training camp so between now and july 10th what is the absolute drop dead deadline for the nhl to announce these two hub cities so preparations can get underway rob yeah i mean i would expect the announcement uh, very soon, I would expect it. Likely, I, I would think. You know, just given that it's June 14th already, and you know, we're less than a month away from when training camps are set to begin, I would expect an announcement likely this week. Um, I, I do think that that, that that what is likely that what could hold up an announcement is Canada's decision on this 14-day quarantine. Uh, if if for some reason, the federal government um, uh, delays that decision uh, because the NHL, it, it, that's a non-starter for the NHL. If, if all the players that come into Canada have to completely self-isolate for 14 days, it'll disrupt their their training regimens and, and everything uh, to, to too high of a degree, and, they, and they'll just pick another hub city in the United States. Um so the and, and that was what Dr. Bonnie Henry was was lending her support to was having a, a, a different arrangement and I and I know that that makes a lot of people go okay well we're going to make special rules for millionaire hockey players but I, I and, and they are special rules but at the same time many of the special rules are more strict in terms of they're going to be tested constantly yes uh, they're going to be tested before they arrive they're going to be tested when they arrive they're going to be tested all the way to the Stanley Cup finals. So, yep. Um, having that and having these players in this uh, this figurative bubble where they're going to be uh, essentially separated from the rest of society, I think is a is a pretty strict measure to to keep. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not an infectious disease <laughs> specialist, but I, that would seem to be a, a pretty strict measure to to keep um, NHL players separate from 
from the community. Absolutely. And of course, and Dr. Henry was, was very, uh, very upfront about it. You know, I'm, I'm a fan. I like all of this, but you know, there will be, uh, the, the protocols will be followed as strictly by any visitor, uh, uh, any sporting type visitor as would be applied to any other person coming into Canada from the outside, unless there's some kind of special dispensation from Ottawa. And none of that has been heard from. Rob, let me take a break and then we're going to change gears because there's so much else going on. We've even got live actual golf on TV this weekend. We've got Bundesliga soccer live, uh, NASCAR racing live. It's kind of coming back, albeit really quietly because nobody's at the ballpark. Our guest is Rob Williams, the sports editor of The Daily Hive. And uh, Rob, we were going to talk about baseball in just a second. I just thought uh, we were talking about uh, the golf tournament on TV, the uh, Charles Schwab Challenge down there in Fort Worth, Texas, with Texan Jordan Spieth leading going into the final round. The top Canadian is Adam Hadwin, and he's six strokes off behind uh, uh, Jordan Spieth. Mackenzie Hughes, the only other Canadian in in the final, is uh, tied uh, way back at even par. So uh, good to see some golf on TV. The golfers will tell you that actually they're kind of enjoying this because they really, they just get to completely focus on their game. There are no fans, no distractions. It's terribly quiet, but at least there's live sports on TV of a kind, right? Uh, absolutely. I, I think golf is probably the most well-suited uh, sport to, to uh, most well-suited Sport to watch on television without fans. Yeah. I, I, I think it, there, there's not there's not a, a huge. It's not. It's a pretty quiet sport as as, as it is, and and even just having a, a few fans into or onto the golf course, I think is um, it can be done fairly safely in, in golf with the open air, of course, and and uh, definitely possible to to keep distance uh, in that setting. Okay, I need your help, Rob, on understanding what's going on with baseball because I know the NBA is they're dithering, they're 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 not even sure the players themselves aren't aren't even sure they want to come back. But in baseball, the negotiations are getting pretty tense. And as I understand, the last offer from the owners to the players went something like this: We're going to reduce your workload by fifty percent, but we're only going to reduce your pay by twenty percent. And the players said, "No way." So what's going on there, Rob? <laughs> yeah, uh, baseball. Baseball's in a, in a trickier spot because, uh, unlike the NHL and the, and the and the NBA, where their regular seasons were mostly mostly complete, uh, so that meant that players had received most of their money already. Yeah, where Major League Baseball was just about to start the regular season, so they've so so owners have to uh, essentially pay players these these huge salaries uh, while at the same time not receiving any of the expected revenue uh, from ticket sales sure and, and ticket sales and, and concession and all that so owners are going to be taking a massive massive hit and, and they want players to to you know share some of that uh, some of that cost um, to put on a season so they've uh, Owners and players in baseball have a contentious relationship at the best of times, mm-hmm. um, and, and essentially, what has happened is that they've they've already agreed uh, back in March. Players and players and owners already agreed that they that players would take a prorated salary 
based on how many games were played. So if half the number of game, regular season games would be played, players would receive half of their salaries. Well, owners now are, are saying, well, that was based on uh, having fans in attendance. Sure. Without fans, we need you to take a bit more. So it's, it's been like a tennis match between, between the baseball owners and, and players. Uh, they just keep volleying uh, proposals back and forth. Um, and and there's, there's really too many proposals to to go through, but essentially owners want players to take a bit of a cut and, and they want to keep the number of games down, whereas players want games up so that they can get more of Even their more money. Even more money, sure. And, 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 and on top of this, owners are concerned about uh, the potential for a second wave to come into the fall and perhaps something uh, disrupting the playoffs. And if, if they can't finish the playoffs, that's going to be um, another huge hit that the owners will take. Because the playoffs, and, and this is true in all major sports in North America, the playoffs are, are more where the owners make their money sure. rather than the players. The players get their money in the regular season. The owners really make make their cake in, in the playoffs. Right. Now, as far as the, 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 and the dispute, of course, very much ongoing in, in, in the major leagues at the top levels of baseball, but it's already filtering down through the sport. Now, Rob, is it a certainty that the Vancouver Canadians season at the prettiest little park in all of baseball, Nat Bailey Stadium, is gone for this summer? A virtual certainty, I, I believe. Uh, they, they haven't they haven't announced. Uh, they've announced that the, that the season has has been postponed. Um, they're obviously keeping their options open, but I don't see any way where we're going to be able to be in a situation where uh, players at that level will be able to be traveling around um, in a way that that keeps everyone safe. The other the other thing is that if you're not able to ha- play in front of crowds. I mean, the, the, the Canadians in, in, and, the, and teams in the Northwest League, they don't have a, a television sure, contract to yeah, make right. money back. So, so yeah, I, I, I don't see I, – I, I would classify that as highly unlikely that we see baseball uh, at Nat Bailey this year. Okay. Now, last we're talking highly unlikely. I saw a public service commercial, a new one on TV last night, Rob, featuring one of the people from the BC Lions. It's the first time I've seen a BC Lions logo on television in months. Uh, this had very little to do with, you know, buy tickets for the new season or anything. It was a public service announcement. But nonetheless, uh, the Lions – and the CFL, what do you what do you think the chance? We'll get to the NFL in a second because they're very determined to go forward. But what's the status of the CFL? A, a much more dependent on fans in the stands for cash flow organization uh, instead of TV, like in the states. What do you think of the CFL's potential for pulling off a season this year? That's right. I mean, I, I mean, as everyone's aware, they they asked for federal money, and, and yep. we're talking about. Um, you know, if, if they weren't able to have fans in the stands, that they would be uh, most certainly not having a season this year. And that they've changed their tune somewhat on that. They're now talking about having a, a, a reduced, um, possibly having a, re- a reduced schedule. So maybe having like an eight game season or something like that, rather, rather than their, their usual 18 game season. Um, and I, I think a big reason is, is uh, you know, the fear of being out of, sight and mind for fans for an entire year uh, could do a lot of damage to, uh, to the league. So I think they're, they're hoping that they can, that they can 
put on a regular season, perhaps in the in the fall, perhaps, you know, after Labor Day, um, and and be able to play, you know, at, at least some games. Uh, I would imagine likely not in front of fans. Although I do think there's a potential to play games in front of some fans, and and especially in CFL uh, stadiums, you can. You know, if, if you we all know BC Place is, is way too big for for the needs of the BC Lions. Sure, uh, you could have fans in the upper bowl um, and and having them spread out to to get some fans into the building, but but it, you know it, it's not going to be twenty thirty thousand. I don't think. Yeah, and finally, uh, just as you well know, many many fans in the stands down the road at the Seahawks games come from oops, British Columbia. So, and we're big fans of the Seahawks in this part of the of the world and and the rest of the NFL. Uh, so they're very determined at this point, at least, to go forward with the whole shooting match. Rob, how likely, including of course the new Las Vegas Raiders, uh, how likely uh, is uh, a, an actual? NFL start to finish season this fall, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, that they will be playing games. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's likely that there will be a season, uh, barring, of course, um, you know, what happens with the virus um, in the United States. If, if, it, if there really is a, a devastating second wave, then, then that can, you know. All, all bets are off. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, yeah. Yeah, I think I think otherwise. Otherwise, the NFL—it's it, a short season. They just have to play the sixteen games, uh, and they only play once a week. So I think that does help. Um, you know, we're, for staging games, you don't have a, a ton of travel, and, and you do have time to to uh, get organized. And of course, they have a massive, massive television contract. Sure. So. Uh, that that will help things as well, where where they're they're much less dependent on on gate revenue for that week. Uh, well, always great to have you on the program, Rob. Thanks for getting up early to do this with us. It's it's uh, always a ton of fun to talk to you. We'll just keep our fingers crossed on this uh, announcement for the hub city for the NHL. You and I both agree it's got to happen pretty soon. But I think Bettman's going to just just ring this one out to the last possible second. But we'll talk about it when it, when the announcement gets made. Okay, we have a date. All right. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks, John. Rob Williams, the Daily Hive sports editor, joining us on CKNW Weekend Mornings. Well, a lot of Vancouver people have a great, great fondness for Seattle. Down the road a couple of hours on I-5, and a lot of us are paying a great deal of attention to what's going on in the Capitol Hill District of Seattle, now referred to as CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. It's a pleasure to welcome Paige Browning to the program this morning from Seattle. Paige is a news anchor and reporter with KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. Good morning, Paige. Welcome. Oh, did we just uh, we just lost the call? Uh, I guess maybe she's in Capitol Hill on a cell, and Julie's going to try and track her back down. The situation, as uh, Emily just reported moments ago, uh, we've, of course, seen the police precinct in that uh, six or seven block area in Capitol Hill, uh, a gentrified area of Seattle uh, that has been occupied by a group of 
protesters, some of whom apparently are armed. Uh, the police precinct, there was a police station inside that zone that was abandoned by Seattle police when the protest broke out. Uh, the tactic at the time simply being a lack of desire to antagonize the protesters uh, any more than uh, they already were uh, at the time. It was a pretty emotional uh, occupation, if you will, of the area of the city. And so the police department decided uh, as a strategy to back away and to move out of the building. Now, unlike Minneapolis, when the police abandoned a precinct, uh, the precinct was burned by protesters. In Seattle, uh, the building was simply boarded up. It remains basically unoccupied. And now there are moves by the police department to uh, retake that precinct uh, in order to, to the, so basically they can go back to work and continue being uh, the, the police department. They're having uh, difficulty responding to calls in the area. Typically, a, a police call for an emergency would take anywhere from, say, six to ten minutes. And unfortunately, in that autonomous zone now, the Seattle police are saying that uh, responding to some emergency calls can take upwards of an hour. And for many residents of the area, kind of caught between uh, the protesters and the sentiments regarding Black Lives Matter and the fact that their homes and uh, their businesses have been occupied and disabled in many cases. So they're kind of torn between uh, support for the protesters and uh, the need to make a living and carry on with their daily lives. So it's quite a predicament. Uh, the president has jumped in uh, in complaining about the uh, zone uh, being taken over by what he referred to as thugs and anarchists and Antifa uh, and basically telling the mayor of Seattle, uh, Jenny Durkin, that if uh, she couldn't manage the situation, he would, uh, which as it turns out is not likely because it was unconstitutional and illegal. Uh, the governor of Washington State, Jay Inslee, uh, hastened to remind the president of uh, the exact limits of his authority. And the mayor of Seattle uh, was uh, not too kind in her response either, basically uh, suggesting Mr. Trump go back to his bunker. Uh, as uh, have we got Paige now? Okay, Paige, good morning. Welcome to the program. Glad we finally made contact. <laughs> Yes, good morning, Sterling. So sorry about that. A lot of people on the phones here in Seattle. I'll just bet there are. Now, where are you this morning? Are you in at home or are you uh, up in Capitol Hill? I am at home, which uh, Capitol Hill, the, the neighborhood that we've been talking about, the Chaz, mm -hmm. or rebranded now as Chop. I saw that, yeah. It's about a mile from me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you've been spending a lot of time in that area. Tell us, back us up a little bit. Now, first of all, you're mm -hmm. up I-5 two hours here, Paige, uh, talking to a lot of people mm -hmm. who really, really like Seattle. Vancouver people go down there a lot. Uh, we have a strong affinity for it. very similar cities in so many ways. So mm -hmm. remind us uh, of the, the length of time now and what size an area is the actual occupied zone so the as as we've seen across the u.s and world the these protests have been happening for more than two weeks now and about a week ago the police in the capitol hill area decided that they needed to move out of their police station there and let and they decided that they'd leave and let the protesters occupy the area and do their protesting without confrontation with right. police. About a week now, they've been there. And this area is about six square blocks and includes part of a large city park. So they have 
they're they're occupying it. There are there's it's basically a, a street fair sort of a vibe there. But they're talking constantly about the Black Lives Matter movement, sure. their requests and demands for police, and um, have have taken over this area of what is normally a very busy business area with restaurants, shops, bars, a small movie theater, things like that. Right. Um, Again, uh, reports are varying. So can you help us here, Paige? For example, if I live inside that area, I have an apartment in Capitol Hill, Mm -hmm. but it happens to be inside the zone and I want to go back and forth uh, to the rest of the city. Am I going to I'm told, for example, there are checkpoints that you have to be able to identify the fact that, yes, I do live in here. And yes, I am going home. Uh, You people will ask you of that. And some of the people doing the asking may in fact be armed how true are all these stories that was a rumor early on that people were needing to provide some sort of documentation that they lived there that's not true i've walked in right into the this zone several times and i don't live there no one has checked me from either side you walk in freely there are people who are standing We're sitting at many of the entrances uh, seemingly more as a safety precaution. You may have heard that uh, about a week ago, one man in a vehicle tried to drive through into protesters. And the people at at one of these entrances blocked him uh, with a a police blockade device. Mm -hmm. So you you don't have to have your ID checked. There was a night when people who were protesting in this area had um, heard rumors about other groups coming in, possibly some white supremacist groups. And so a gun club came for one evening and was armed. Okay. And that was for one night and, and has since been very free, easy to walk in. You get handed CDs or, uh, or, or free food, basically, when you enter now. Okay, so again, it's it's really helpful on a Sunday morning when we're having that second cup of coffee and trying to get the lay of the world uh, to have some some right. some clarification because they're really the rumors, as you can appreciate in the coverage. Again, uh, there's there's a lot of politics in 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 coverage of the news these days, regrettably. Uh, and uh, for example, we're seeing the Fox News uh, accused of doctoring images of what they were pro- pro- proclaiming to be uh, right. the uh, the occupied zone in Seattle which turned out, in fact, to be pictures of Minneapolis from a few weeks earlier. So, you know, it's it's right. nice to at least have a, an opportunity to speak to someone who's been there for the past couple of weeks every day mm-hmm. and get some clarification on this. Paige Browning is joining us from Seattle. Paige is a news anchor and reporter with KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. And this morning, the story is, and you mentioned it already, Paige, they want to change the name from the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone to the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest. Um, you talked earlier about about the strategy by Seattle City Police to, uh, for lack of a better word, abandon that precinct in Capitol Hill uh, in order to uh, defuse the situation, to diminish the antagonism factor. Uh, But now they want it back. So what is the likelihood they're going to be able to reoccupy their own police station over the next few days? 
Well, I, th- I think that's everyone's question is when and how they will try to reoccupy their police station. The police have toured the building several times to make sure that everything's still in order. And each time it seems to put the people who are protesting on edge a bit because there is some uh, some fear there that the police will try to overtake it before they're done protesting. And the protesters plan to stay in this area basically until their demands are met and Seattle police uh, starts to do some defunding and put police money instead into community programs. So whether the police department will be able to take back its building and move in soon, um, it's sort of everyone's question. Our police chief would like to see that done, but I think the police department and the people who are protesting, they want it to be done peacefully. So that might not be right now. Exactly. And we're hearing of some tension between the uh, chief of police and the mayor because uh, of the different agendas there. The mayor already talking about the, uh, well, because she was asked point blank, well, how long can this possibly go on? I mean, how, what, what are we, what are we in for here? And, and she said at one point, well, it could be a summer of love. Uh, and I hope, you know, th- mm-hmm. that she's referring to 1967 uh, as opposed to 1968, mm-hmm. which was the exact opposite. And that, unfortunately, is the summer that a lot of people across the United States are referencing already as a, a potential for what uh, this could boil over into. But what about this tension between the mayor and the police chief? Uh, it, it's not, uh, it, it's it's certainly being written and talked about, but it's it's kind of taking the the focus off this defunding issue, which is the, the primary concern of those who occupy the capital. Hill zone, right? Right. I think that's true. So much of the debate between the mayor and police chief is just about how this policing should be done right, right. now. Yeah. The police chief herself has said she didn't want them to leave the precinct, that someone else made that order and she hasn't said who. But there is there is no doubt debate between them. Uh, This started when our police chief was put into her position and the mayor initially did not support that. So it's it's a long running relationship between them. But at the end of the day, uh, our mayor, Jenny Durkin, this is very political for her. We're seeing her get pushback from people on the streets and also from President Trump on Twitter, uh, as you mentioned on the show. So it's... um, they're trying to work together publicly, but behind the scenes, there is there's certainly some tension about how do they do the policing right now. Okay, two-part question for you, Paige Browning. One, how many people, what's the population of the, uh, the protest group inside the autonomous zone there, inside Chaz? And two, what's the buzz around the rest of, t- of Seattle about all of this? So within the 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 Chaz or now known as the the Capitol Hill organized protest, I would say people who are staying there 24 hours, there might be a couple hundred. But when you go in the afternoon, there are thousands of people who are part of this movement. So the people that are there and, and stay the night, that's one group. But this is a movement of thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of people in Seattle who are tired of seeing the racial injustices in our city and in the whole U.S. So they show up each night to hear speakers, to hear bands, to do teach-ins and to help with the movement. So um, so that hopefully that answers the first question. Mm-hmm, yeah. 
and and their uh, the demands that they want met it could some it take could take some time to see done. You asked about the buzz in Seattle. This is what everyone's talking about. I'm sure. And even people, even people within the within our city, have seen some of the misinformation go around and think that it's a dangerous place in Chaz, and have asked me, "Is it safe? Is everything okay? Is it dangerous there?" Because of some of the misinformation that they've seen that right. you mentioned. Um, so in Seattle, even there are questions about what exactly is going on there. But at the end of the day, it's a protest for racial justice, and thousands of people have visited in the last several days. A lot of demands being made by protest groups all over the place these days. And what, what is the primary demand of the group in Capitol Hill? Is, and the magic word appears mm-hmm. to be defunding, Page. But have they gone beyond exactly. using the word to define exactly what specifically they want under the umbrella of defunding? Right. Defund SPD is sort of the chant you hear at the protest. Yeah. They have laid out what they what they want. They have said uh, at least some of the organized groups have told the city we want to see a 50 percent reduction in the police budget. And we want that money to instead go toward organizations and community programs for black and brown communities in Seattle. Um, they also, some individuals are asking for changes in leadership in the city. We've seen uh, some people ask for Mayor Durkin to resign yeah, in Seattle. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but but really that's, you, you, you hit it. The big topic they're asking for is reducing the police budget. And now we've seen that happen in some cities in the U.S., but our mayor and police chief do not seem interested in that and, and are not really entertaining large discussions about it at this time. Interesting stuff. So uh, the mayor is, would have the power uh, within her, her legislation to, to do it if, uh, if mm-hmm. she and city council opted. So it does, she doesn't need the governor's permission or anything like that. If it, need, it needed to be changed or there was enough appetite for change, it could happen. Right. It could happen. And already... Some of our city council members, who are, of course, a different body from the mayor, sure. they want to see this happen. So if the city council passes it, Mayor Durkin in Seattle will either need to get on board or say she's going to veto it and keep the police budget in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. Final question to you, Paige, and we're really grateful we uh, made contact today. How long do you think this is going to yes. go on? Sterling, that's sort of the million-dollar question. This, I think that this movement is is gaining fuel, and we will see protests go on, possibly, like our mayor said, through the summer. Mm. Um, the Capitol Hill organized protest area, the six blocks that's been taken over by people, I can't imagine the police want to stay away much longer. So if I was guessing, it would be closed down by month's end, but... Check in with me then. I will. I absolutely will. Thanks for the, I appreciate the invitation. (laughs) Consider it taken up already. Thanks for this, Paige. Great to have you on the show this morning.
Paige Browning from KUOW in Seattle. One of Canada's prominent infectious disease experts says he's confident a vaccine for COVID-19 will be ready in months, not years. In a virtual conversation with Governor General Julie Payette the other day on Friday, Dr. Gary Kobinger, director of the Research Center on Infectious Diseases at Laval University in Quebec, says there are more than a 100 possible vaccines in development for COVID-19 around the world. So with so many resources and people working on the problem, Dr. Kobinger says things are moving very quickly and, quote, I think we have a very high likelihood to see a coronavirus vaccine emerge in the next, hopefully, months, meaning many, many months, but not 10 years. Here to talk about it is Jason Tetro. Mr. Tetro is a regular visitor to CKNW. He's an expert in emerging pathogens and the host of the super awesome science show. Jason, welcome back. Good morning. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, let's talk about uh, the findings here. From And, of course, we've known that there are trials underway in Canada, Jason, and yeah. in America. But, you know, you, you step back and you go, of course, there are hundreds of, of va- vaccine possibilities in trial at one degree or another around the world. I find that, find that incredibly encouraging news. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and let me just point out something. Uh, the person who was talking with uh, Governor General Julie Payette, uh, Gary Kobinger, uh, he's the guy that actually developed the Ebola vaccine. Uh-huh. You know, the one that's mm-hmm. working 100%. Yes. So y- y- you kind of want to listen to him. <laughs> um, so anyways, uh, when you look at the possibilities as to how you can develop a vaccine, uh, the, the, the options are very um, wide and open and diverse. You know, before it was basically uh, you either take the live bug or you somehow, you know, chemically inactivate it so that it can't hurt you. And then you, you know, plug it inside of you and hope to goodness it works. Now what we have is the ability to uh, modify uh, so that we can take pieces of that particular virus, put it inside of you. Uh, We can actually um, put it into other types of viruses that don't harm you, but will mass produce this. Uh, And also what we have are called fusion proteins. So what they do is they take little pieces of the virus and put them all together and it creates this one big protein that your immune system goes, hey, let's beat this up. Sure. And remember, a protein is not just going to make one antibody. It's going to make a huge number of different antibodies. So all of these potential directions for vaccines are being explored at the moment. Which one or two or maybe dozen are going to come up with the ability to really make a difference first in the animal studies and then eventually to to get that sort of benchmark or threshold to go to clinical trials? Well, that's where we start weeding them out. Interesting. Jason, just a curiosity question, because there are, as you pointed out, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of trials underway around the world. And what they're doing, of course, is is utilizing the actual virus itself and trying to find approaches that will kill it. Mm-hmm. Where, where's the central distribution point for the virus? All of these experiments going on all around the planet need bits of virus to use in their experiments. Where do they go for that? Well, there's a couple of places. Um, there are registries now, which what, what uh, we call reagent sharing hubs. Um, they do have access to the virus. But believe it or not, you can just make most of, if not all, of the virus on your own. Hmm. Um, you might remember a while ago, uh, there was a professor here at the University of Alberta, I'm in Edmonton. Yeah. Uh, he built a virus by, through the mail. <laughs> So the fact of the matter is, is that we now know what the sequence is of the virus. 
So if you've got a strong enough laboratory and you've got enough postdocs and graduate students, you can probably make a version of that yourself in your own lab. Uh, and, and this isn't new, by the way. I mean, when it came to SARS, we would be able to do that when I had labs way, way back in the you know, aughts. Oh, okay. So again, uh, they don't rely on one central distribution point. Uh, and, and of course, that would be a, pr- a pretty secure place, you, you would have to think, among an, many other descriptions for it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're looking at the actual virus itself, it's probably under a fairly good lock and key. Now, it's nowhere near as um, uh, secure as it was with respect to SARS. Like, we, we, we tried to get that virus. Oh, my God. You, you had to go through paperwork and all sorts of other things. Here, it's a little bit different because we do have that ability to have these material transfer agreements and all these types of things that are going to help. And that's great. Um, but, but you also have to understand, when we're starting to look at how we can develop uh, treatments, vaccines, this type of thing, we don't need the whole virus itself. We can start using pieces, as I mentioned earlier. Sure. So, and, and the other thing is that we can actually use other viruses, uh, retroviruses. You've heard of HIV. Sure. Well, it's a retrovirus. Well, we can make versions of that HIV virus that are, you know, harmless, but that contain pieces of the COVID-19 virus. So the fact is, is we, we live in a world where we can do so much, essentially, uh, through genetic engineering that we don't necessarily need the actual virus itself to be able to do a number of really good studies. It's interesting. You were talking about Dr. Kobinger here in Canada being the person who invented the uh, the Ebola virus. I'm, I'm just thinking in the same sense, in the same context, Jason, that's probably why Dr. Tony Fauci in the United States has so much credibility. He's the guy who uh, discovered the HIV uh, virus, uh, uh, an antidote uh, back in the days, along with Dr. Deborah Burks. So uh, in terms of having someone who, who, with a, a hand on the tiller who really understands the field, uh, Dr. Fauci is, is certainly the guy in the United States, I guess, comparable with Dr. Kobinger here in Canada. Uh, yeah, and I mean, um, Dr. Kobinger was just one of a great group of people who uh, are in Manitoba who are actually working uh, on these types of, uh, you know, diseases and vaccines. Um, you know, the one person went to NIH. We, we, we won't talk about him. He's a traitor. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the fact of the matter is that um, we have some in- incredibly good researchers here in Canada who are doing everything they can. What I'm hoping is that the funding that's been announced to be able to support that type of research is going to continue on so that we can get to that end stage rather than what we had with the Ebola vaccine where it sat on a shelf and the SARS vaccine, which was done in the States with uh, my friend uh, Peter Hotez, which also sat on a shelf. We do not want this virus or vaccine, I should say, to sit on a shelf. Uh, public pressure is not going to allow it. It's, uh, it's un- unlike SARS or Ebola, which were urgent and which we all recognized as being deadly. Uh, COVID, I think, is even more in our midst, Jason, and therefore a public pressure and, and, and the degree of anxiety. We just talked to Deloitte last hour about their latest consumer uh, survey, mm-hmm. and, and public anxiety in Canada is still way up there. It's mm-hmm. almost through the clouds, Jason. So I, I think in terms of... Uh, of that public pressure will, will have a lot to do with with funding directions. Uh, the, certainly, the government's been quite generous in terms of funding announcements up to this point. Oh yeah, absolutely. But you also have to realize one other thing. Um, what hap- what's happening right now in Canada is basically what happened in 2003 in Toronto. Absolutely everything that we are seeing around the country is what happened in Toronto. 
And so what you have to realize is that all we've done is we essentially have had a virus that instead of going to one spot in our country has gone pretty much all over the place. Yeah. And so as a result of that, um, it became a really big deal. Now, here's the big problem. If we don't have that second wave, and I'm not saying that I want the second wave, but right. if we don't have it, then what's going to happen is we're going to run into another SARS situation where in the next year, so 2021, yep, we're still going to be, it's still going to be on the agenda. 2022, and by 2023, you'll be like, remember that COVID-19? Oh, yeah, that was like, you know, an Olympics ago. Yeah. Uh, is this, uh, it's a strange question to ask, but I think I need to because I think a lot of people are suspicious. Is this a contest is, is, in other words, who, this, the group that discovers the most effective vaccine will have essentially a monopoly on it for a brief period of time uh, with manufacturing and all the rest of the profiteering that can go along with all of that. Uh, is, it, is, is there a sharing aspect to all of this that, that supersedes the competition? Uh, I, I don't understand sometimes, uh, and I don't think a lot of people in the general public do, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the cooperation level between scientists, which I would suggest is close to 100%, but sometimes their masters don't allow it. Yeah, and it really depends on where you happen to be, okay? Here in Canada, and I'm not going to talk about the vaccine for a second, I'm going to talk about testing. Okay. Um, in Canada, we had all sorts of different types of testing, and it was being used. The ones that didn't work were put away. The ones that worked were continued on. In the States, they actually had tests that work, but because the companies that run essentially healthcare and the insurance companies didn't have that test, it was never approved. And they waited until their labs had those tests in place before they could do mass production of testing and, and essentially test everybody, okay? Ah. Now, that's one thing that you have to understand is that if you happen to be in the United States or some other um, country that, that prefers capitalism over healthcare, then it's going to essentially be whoever gets to it first is going to win the most amount of money. Right. If it comes out of a place where that doesn't exist, and thankfully the majority of countries are like that, then what will happen is that it will be widely shared amongst all the other member uh, countries, and this will probably be done through the World Health Organization, so that everyone will have an opportunity. And we'll start to see clinical trials that are widespread as opposed to maybe just, you know, in one small area of the United States because that's basically where the company holds all of its, um, you know, employees and such. Yeah, we have some kind of understanding about that, which is I thought it was a fair question. Jason Tetro is joining us from Edmonton. Jason is host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He is an expert in infectious diseases. And for the record, Jason, I need to just take a quick second and acknowledge the fact that when I was talking about uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, and the work that he was doing along with Deborah Burks back in the 80s on HIV and AIDS, he did not discover an HIV vaccine. Such a thing still does not exist. What they they did identify, however, was the first in a series of uh, chemicals and combinations that could bit that made HIV a manageable condition, and that's still what remains. We're talking, of course, now this morning about a COVID nineteen vaccine. Uh, Jason, very optimistic that uh, this uh, uh, will be found. Uh, now, the, the the cautious forecast from uh, Dr. Kobinger here in Canada is many, many months, but not ten years. Uh, so, uh, are you? somewhat optimistic that we could see something by perhaps the end of next year. I mean, it's, it's not years, but it's uh, probably 18 months away. What do you think? 
Well, at the moment, we are seeing uh, some of these uh, vaccine candidates, the ones that have sort of been around for a while but never really got off a shelf. Um, they, they were sort of modified a little bit, and then they were essentially used, repurposed, if you will. They're heading into clin- uh, phase two and phase three clinical trials sort of as we speak. Mm. So the fact is that um, we should start seeing some relatively good news by September, And then hopefully by December, we'll have um, what we call sort of that probability that we're going to have an effective vaccine that will be, you know, a one-time or maybe a one-time with a booster or Mm -hmm. or once every year, depending on essentially how effective it is. At the moment, what I can tell you is that um, the, the ones that are being tested that have gotten through the phase one, um, are doing fairly well. Uh, we are seeing a, a moderate. It's, it's not like robust and huge, sure. but it's moderate response to, to the vaccine. Uh, we are seeing those lovely neutralizing antibodies that are coming out. And, uh, you know, it, it does look like it's also helping the rest of the immune system recognize this particular virus and, and fight against it. So it's all good news at the moment. It's just how far is that good news going to go before we hit our first roadblock? And as we all know, any, anyone who in research knows, you know, there's always going to be a roadblock. <laughs> uh, our Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's doing a magnificent job of, of managing British Columbia's uh, mm-hmm. public health profile, talks about talked about recently something called a serology test. She was saying mm-hmm. that there was some enthusiasm mm-hmm. for serology testing in British Columbia. What's that? Okay, so serology is just a really um, long and complicated term uh, to mean antibodies. You know, you have your blood. Well, you can divide your blood into red blood cells, and then there's serum, and the serum serology. And in that serum are the antibodies. So that's where the, the, the name comes from. Okay. And so what you're doing is you're looking for antibodies against uh, SARS-CoV-2 in the hopes of determining whether or not this person has been exposed. Because essentially what happens is when your body gets exposed and the virus gets inside of you and, you know, maybe gets a couple of rounds of multiplication in, in your, uh, you know, nasal tract or something like that, your body recognizes that and says, <laughs> okay, wait a second here, we got to do something about this. Right. Then um, it'll start creating two different types of responses. One is called a humoral response. Well, that's what essentially the antibodies. The other is a cellular response, and those are T cells and everything. And we're developing tests for that right now. But the big thing we need to know is, can you produce antibodies? And if you do, then that means that you've somehow been exposed to this virus. And that's a really important thing for us to realize, not necessarily for a vaccine or for a treatment, but for that whole second wave and, sure. and possibly the circulation. Because if a lot of the population has antibodies, well, then it's going to be far less likely that this particular virus is going to come back and do the type of damage it's already done. Yeah, I, I want to throw a quote at you. This is from uh, Mr. Trump's financial advisor, economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, uh, <laughs> on the American News Networks a couple of days ago. Quote, I talked to a couple of doctors last night, and I am assured there will be no second wave. I repeat, there will be no second wave. Yeah. Uh, and, and this uh, and that was uh, allowed to hit the public airways as a definitive stand mm-hmm. uh, from a guy who's never spent a second in medical school. Oh, no. Uh, and, and the reason that he can get away with doing that is because America. OK, so, you know, remember way, way back when, uh, like three months ago, the reason we all went into lockdown was because we were afraid that this thing would start burning through the population yes. and then flooding our, our um, hospitals and our ICUs. Right. Right. Well, what's happened is that in the States, 
for some odd reason, the majority of the states have decided that maybe this concept of herd burn, which essentially means that you're getting the majority of the population either exposed or infected, is probably the best approach because they can't stop people from going to beaches and churches. Sure, that, that would be the Swedish approach, I, I guess. It. Yeah, so the Swedish approach was along those lines. Yeah. Um, and so as a result of that, what they're essentially doing is they're just hoping that the virus burns through the population such that there will be no chance for a second wave because it's basically taken out all the people it's going to take out in that first wave. Ah, okay. Are you uh, at all uh, assured that such an approach would be a practical one? No. <laughs> it's bad. Because what will end up happening, and we're already starting to see this in many parts of the, of the United States, is that you are going to start, like, it's not like it's changed in three months. You're still going to have the, you know, overbooking of uh, hospitals. You're going to have the overfilling of the ICUs. You're going to run out of ventilators. You're going to run out of beds. And the worst part about it is that the United States works on a capitalistic environment. So basically, you go in, you get treated, there's going to be a bill for someone to pay. And I don't know if you heard, there was this recent story of a guy in Seattle. He spent like 60 days in there. He got a bill of over $1 million. Now, granted, it was paid for by insurance, but imagine the people, how many people don't have insurance. Basically, they're bankrupting people by essentially leaving them open to being infected by this virus. Well, in this country, we fortunately have a different approach. Uh, to mm-hmm. the, and, and so now, because we do, uh, Canadians, we've only got a minute here. It's unfair to give you such a short amount of time, but there's an ethical debate at play here in yeah. terms of once we do establish a successful vaccine therapy, who should get it first? I think the decision is frontline workers automatically first. So who should get it second? Uh, ring vaccination. So essentially what we do is we identify the people who are at the highest risk, and then we identify their uh, closest contacts, and those are the people who are going to get the vaccine. But healthcare workers are basically going to be front of the front of the line, and then it's going to be that ring vaccination, and eventually it's going to be full vaccination for everybody. And just remember, when we had the last pandemic, H1N1, we had the vaccine by October. How many people got it? 30%. So vaccination is not going to be the, the answer because well, of ethics. Uh, right. And of course, there's the anti-vaxxer movement, which is decidedly unhelpful. But do you think you would see a uh, final question to you, JT, uh, is do you think we'll see a higher participation rate than 30 percent once Canadians are assured there's an effective vaccine available to them? Can I do a no comment? <laughs> <laughs> No, it'll be somewhere between 30 and 40 percent. I'm surprised by that. I'm discouraged somewhat, but I, I'm going to be in that 40 percent. You can bet your bottom dollar on that one, Jason Tetro. Same Th- with me, my good friend. Yeah, thanks for this. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Appreciate the calm voice in the midst of all of this COVID chaos. Not a problem. Have a great one. We'll talk again. Jason Tetro, host of the super awesome science show. He's an expert in emerging pathogens. Well, a lot of Vancouver people have a great, great fondness for Seattle. Down the road a couple of hours on I-5, and a lot of us are paying a great deal of attention to what's going on in the Capitol Hill District of Seattle, now referred to as CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. It's a pleasure to welcome Paige Browning to the program this morning from Seattle. Paige is a news anchor and reporter with KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. Good morning, Paige. Welcome. 
Oh, did we just uh, we just lost the call? Uh, I guess maybe she's in Capitol Hill on a cell, and Julie's going to try and track her back down. The situation, as uh, Emily just reported moments ago, uh, we've of course seen the police precinct in that uh, six or seven block area in Capitol Hill, uh, a gentrified area of Seattle uh, that has been occupied by a group of protesters, some of whom apparently are armed. Uh, the police precinct, there was a police station inside that zone that was abandoned by Seattle police when the protest broke out. Uh, the tactic at the time simply being a lack of desire to antagonize the protesters uh, any more than uh, they already were uh, at the time. It was a pretty emotional uh, occupation, if you will, of the area of the city. And so the police department decided uh, as a strategy to back away and to move out of the building. Now, unlike Minneapolis, when the police abandoned a precinct, uh, the precinct was burned by protesters. In Seattle, uh, the building was simply boarded up. It remains basically unoccupied. And now there are moves by the police department to uh, retake that precinct uh, in order to, to they, so basically they can go back to work and continue being uh, the, the police department. They're having uh, difficulty responding to calls in the area. Typically, a, a police call for an emergency would take anywhere from, say, six to ten minutes. And unfortunately, in that autonomous zone now, the Seattle police are saying that uh, responding to some emergency calls can take upwards of an hour. And for many residents of the area, kind of caught between uh, the protesters and the sentiments regarding Black Lives Matter and the fact that their homes and uh, their businesses have been occupied and disabled in many cases. So they're kind of torn between uh, support for the protesters and uh, the need to make a living and carry on with their daily lives. So it's quite a predicament. Uh, the president has jumped in uh, in complaining about the uh, zone uh, being taken over by what he referred to as thugs and anarchists and Antifa uh, and basically telling the mayor of Seattle, uh, Jenny Durkin, that if uh, she couldn't manage the situation he would, uh, which, as it turns out, is not likely because it was unconstitutional and illegal. Uh, The governor of Washington State, Jay Inslee, uh, hastened to remind the president of uh, the exact limits of his authority. And the mayor of Seattle uh, was uh, not too kind in her response either, basically uh, suggesting Mr. Trump go back to his bunker uh, as uh, have we got Paige now. Okay, Paige, good morning. Welcome to the program. Glad we finally made contact. Yes, good morning, Sterling. So sorry about that. A lot of people on the phones here in Seattle. I'll just bet there are. Now, where are you this morning? Are you in at home or are you uh, up in Capitol Hill? I am at home, which uh, Capitol Hill, the, the neighborhood that we've been talking about, the Chaz, mm-hmm. or rebranded now as Top. I saw that. Yeah, it's about a mile from me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you've been spending a lot of time in that area. Tell us, back us up a little bit. Now, first of all, you're mm-hmm. up I five two hours here, Paige, uh, talking to a lot of people mm-hmm. who really, really like Seattle. Vancouver people go down there a lot. Uh, we have a strong affinity for it. very similar cities in so many ways. So mm-hmm. remind us uh, of the the length of time now, and what size an area is the actual occupied zone. So the as as we've seen across the U.S. and world, the, these protests have been happening for more than two weeks now. And about a week ago, the police 
in the Capitol Hill area decided that they needed to move out of their police station there and let and they decided that they'd leave and let the protesters occupy the area and do their protesting without confrontation with right. police. About a week now they've been there and this area is about six square blocks and it includes part of a large city park. So they have they're they're occupying it. There are there's it's basically a, a street fair sort of a vibe there, but they're talking constantly about the Black Lives Matter movement, sure. their requests and demands for police, and um, have, have taken over this area of what is normally a very busy business area with restaurants, shops, bars, a small movie theater, things like that. Right. Um, uh, again, uh, reports are varying. So can you help us here, Paige? For example, if I live inside that area, I have an apartment in Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. but it happens to be inside the zone, and I want to go back and forth uh, to the rest of the city, am I going to... I, I'm told, for example, there are checkpoints that you have to be able to identify the fact that, yes, I do live in here, and uh, yes, I am going home. Uh, you People will ask you of that, and some of the people doing the asking may in fact be armed how true are all these stories that was a rumor early on that people were needing to provide some sort of documentation that they lived there that's not true i've walked in right into the this zone several times and i don't live there no one has checked me from either side you walk in freely there are people who are standing we're sitting at many of the entrances uh, seemingly more as a safety precaution. You may have heard that uh, about a week ago, one man in a vehicle dr- tried to drive through into protesters. Yep. And the people at, at one of these entrances blocked him uh, with, a, with a police blockade device. Mm-hmm. So you don't, have to, you don't have to have your ID checked. There was a night when people who were protesting in this area had um, heard rumors about other groups coming in, possibly some white supremacist groups. And so a gun club came for one evening and was armed. Okay. And that was for one night and, and has since been very free, easy to walk in. You get handed CDs or, uh, or, or free food, basically, when you enter now. Okay, so again, it's it's really helpful on a Sunday morning when we're having that second cup of coffee and trying to get the lay of the world uh, to have some some right. some clarification because they're really the rumors, as you can appreciate in the coverage. Again, uh, there's there's a lot of politics in 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 coverage of the news these days, regrettably. Uh, and uh, for example, we're mm-hmm. seeing the Fox News uh, accused of doctoring images of what they were pro- pro- proclaiming to be uh, right. the uh, the occupied zone in Seattle which turned out, in fact, to be pictures of Minneapolis from a few weeks earlier. So, you know, it's it's right. nice to at least have a, an opportunity to speak to someone who's been there for the past couple of weeks every day mm-hmm. and get some clarification on this. Paige Browning is joining us from Seattle. Paige is a news anchor and reporter with KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. And this morning, the story is, and you mentioned it already, Paige, they want to change the name from the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone to the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest. Um, you talked earlier about about the strategy by Seattle City Police to 
uh, for lack of a better word, abandon that precinct in Capitol Hill uh, in order to uh, de- defuse the situation, to diminish the antagonism factor. Uh, but now they want it back. So what is the likelihood they're going to be able to reoccupy their own police station over the next few days? Well, I, th- I think that's everyone's question is when and how they will try to reoccupy their police station. The police have toured the building several times to make sure that everything's still in order. And each time it seems to put the people who are protesting on edge a bit because there is some uh, some fear there that the police will try to overtake it before they're done protesting. And the protesters plan to stay in this area basically until their demands are met and Seattle police uh, starts to do some defunding and put police money instead into community programs. So whether the police department will be able to take back its building and move in soon, um, it's sort of everyone's question. Our police chief would like to see that done, but I think the police department and the people who are protesting, they want it to be done peacefully. So that might not be right now. Exactly. And we're hearing of some tension between the uh, chief of police and the mayor because uh, of the different agendas there. The mayor already talking about the, uh, well, because she was asked point blank, well, how long can this possibly go on? I mean, how, what, what are we what are we in for here? And, and she said at one point, well, it could be a summer of love. Uh, and I hope, you know, th- mm-hmm. that she's referring to 1967 uh, as opposed to 1968, mm-hmm. which was the exact opposite. And that, unfortunately, is the summer that a lot of people across the United States are referencing already as a, a potential for what uh, this could boil over into. But what about this tension between the mayor and the police chief? Uh, it, it's not uh, it, it's it's certainly being written and talked about, but it's it's kind of taking the the focus off this defunding issue, which is the the primary concern of those who occupy the capital. Hill zone, right? Right. I think that's true. So much of the debate between the mayor and police chief is is just about how this policing should be done right Right. now. The police chief herself has said she didn't want them to leave the precinct, that someone else made that order and she hasn't said who. But there is there is no doubt debate between them. Uh, This started when our police chief was put into her position and the mayor initially did not support that. So it's it's a long running relationship between them. But at the end of the day, uh, our mayor, Jenny Durkin, this is very political for her. We're seeing her get pushback from people on the streets and also from President Trump on Twitter, uh, as as you mentioned on the show. So it's... um, they're trying to work together publicly, but behind the scenes, there is there's certainly some tension about how do they do the policing right now. Okay, two-part question for you, Paige Browning. One, how many people, what's the population of the, uh, the protest group inside the autonomous zone there, inside Chaz? And two, what's the buzz around the rest of, t- of Seattle about all of this? So within the 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 Chaz or now known as the the Capitol Hill organized protest, I would say people who are staying there 24 hours, there might be a couple hundred. But when you go in the afternoon, there are thousands of people who are part of this movement. So the people that are there and, and stay the night, that's one group. 
But this is a movement of thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of people in Seattle who are tired of seeing the racial injustices in our city and in the whole U.S. So they show up each night to hear speakers, to hear bands, to do teach-ins, and to help with the movement. So, um, so that, hopefully that answers the first question. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and they're... Uh, the demands that they want met, it could some it take could take some time to see done. You asked about the buzz in Seattle. This is what everyone's talking about. I'm sure. And even people, even people within the within our city, have seen some of the misinformation go around and think that it's a dangerous place in Chaz, and have asked me, "Is it safe? Is everything okay? Is it dangerous there?" Because of some of the misinformation that they've seen that right. you mentioned. Um, so in Seattle, even there are questions about what exactly is going on there. But at the end of the day, it's a protest for racial justice, and thousands of people have visited in the last several days. A lot of demands being made by protest groups all over the place these days. And what what is the primary demand of the group in Capitol Hill? Is and the magic word appears mm-hmm. to be defunding, Page? But have they gone beyond exactly. using the word to define exactly what specifically they want under the umbrella of defunding? Right. Defund SPD is sort of the chant you hear at the protest. Yeah. They have laid out what they what they want. They have said, uh, at least some of the organized groups have told the city, we want to see a 50 percent reduction in the police budget. And we want that money to instead go toward organizations and community programs for black and brown communities in Seattle. Um, they also, some individuals are asking for changes in leadership in the city. We've seen uh, some people ask for Mayor Durkin to resign. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but but really, that's you 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 hit it. The big topic they're asking for is reducing the police budget. And now we've seen that happen in some cities in the U.S. But our mayor and police chief do not seem interested in that, and and are not really entertaining large discussions about it at this time. Interesting stuff. So uh, the mayor is, would have the power uh, within her, her legislation to, to do it if uh, if mm-hmm. she and city council opted. So it does. she doesn't need the governor's permission or anything like that. If it, need, it needed to be changed or there was enough appetite for change, it could happen. Right. It could happen. And already... Some of our city council members, who are, of course, a different body from the mayor, they want to see this happen. So if the city council passes it, Mayor Durkin in Seattle will either need to get on board or say she's going to veto it and keep the police budget in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. Final question to you, Paige, and we're really grateful we uh, made contact today. How long do you think this is going to go on? Sterling, that's sort of the million-dollar question. This, I think that this movement is is gaining fuel, and we will see protests go on, possibly, like our mayor said, through the summer. Mm. Um, the Capitol Hill organized protest area, the six blocks that's been taken over by people, I can't imagine the police want to stay away much longer. So if I was guessing, it would be closed down by month's end, but... 
Check in with me then. I will. I absolutely will. Thanks for the, I appreciate the invitation. (laughs) Consider it taken up already. Thanks for this, Paige. Great to have you on the show this morning. Paige Browning from KUOW in Seattle.